As we kick off the message today, I want to kind of blow something up uh, that you may have believed to be true for your entire life. So we're going to maybe destroy some paradigms for you. It's a question that we have argued about throughout history. Uh, and people really have some deep-seated convictions about this. So buckle up as we tackle the controversial question, is the tomato a fruit or a vegetable? I mean, this is critical, folks. Most of us begin our lives with the confident assurance that a tomato is a vegetable, right? I mean, that's, that's just natural assumption. And then sometime, usually around later elementary school, one of those kids walks into a conversation and usually pushing their glasses further up the bridge of their nose with their fingers, uh, you know, will whine, well, technically the tomato is considered a fruit. Um, you know, an argument would then ensue and moving forward, most of us have grudgingly accepted that a tomato is in fact a fruit. But today I wanna to tell you with great certainty that a tomato is a vegetable and a fruit. Um, how can it be both? Can something really be two things at once? Scientifically speaking, tomatoes are definitely a fruit. Dictionary, the usually edible reproductive body of a seed plant. That's the thrilling definition of a tomato or of a fruit. Uh, that includes apples, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, pumpkins, and anything else that grows from a plant and contains seeds. Even coffee is a fruit by this definition that we just read. Um, vegetables, on the other hand, have a little more murky definition to them. The confusion is that a vegetable isn't a botanical classification, okay? Uh, there's nothing in the plant world that describes a vegetable. It's a culinary description, a vegetable is. A fruit can be a culinary term as well instead of scientific. Um, and a culinary term for a fruit is described as having a sweet pulp associated with the seed and used chiefly in a dessert or sweet course. That's the definition of a fruit in culinary terms. So scientifically, fruits don't have to be sweet, but in the kitchen, most people would classify fruits that fall on the savory side, like tomatoes, as vegetables. And this is gonna blow your mind. Even the Supreme Court weighed in on this issue. I mean, you think the Supreme Court doesn't have enough to deal with. But in 1893, the high court was forced to rule on whether imported tomatoes should be taxed under the Tariff Act of 1883, which only applied to vegetables and not to fruits. And although both sides cited dictionary definitions of the two words, the court sided unanimously with hashtag team vegetable. So if you want, you know, validation for your maybe deep-rooted, maybe suppressed uh, opinion that a tomato is a vegetable, you can cite Supreme Court case law that the tomato is in fact a vegetable. It can be summed up in this way. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. There you go. Hopefully we put that uh, argument to rest. So why does this all matter? 
And how in the world does this relate to the Lord's Prayer as we're going into this this morning? Well, first of all, I thought it was fascinating and I wanted to share it and I'm kind of a nerd. That's number one. But secondly, I was that child in elementary school, by the way. That's how I know him so well. The one who walks up and technically the tomato's a fruit. That was me. Uh, but secondly, I wanted you to see from the start that something can be more than one thing at the same time, depending on your perspective and how you're viewing it and how you're defining it. It depends on who's doing the evaluation and a lot of other factors. And that's going to come into play in a major, major way as we look at the next portion of the Lord's Prayer this morning. And just a fair warning as we get started, okay? This message is pretty meaty. Um, we're going to dive really deep today. So take a deep breath as we read the next part of the Lord's Prayer. And that's in Matthew 6, 13, uh, Jesus continues in his prayer and don't let us yield to temptation. Now, we use the New Living Translation 98% of the time uh, in our messages on Sunday morning, and that's what the, how the New Living Translation translates the Greek, uh, and don't let us yield to temptation. But then there's a footnote there, um, and in the footnote, it translates it differently. could also read, and keep us from being tested. So don't let us yield to temptation and keep us from being tested. Now, then we have the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, which if there's a, a ton of translations out there, the NASB uh, is pretty much, it's like a word for word translation of the original Greek. It doesn't read real well. Uh, it's not real, it doesn't flow well. And sometimes the meaning is kind of shuffled in English because we don't talk the way the ancient Greeks did. But if you're looking for a really word-for-word -word approximation of what the Greek would have said, the NASB is a valuable tool. It's a good resource. And the NASB translates it, and do not lead us into temptation. And that's probably the version or close to the version that maybe you have memorized in the traditional, you know, re re repraying of the Lord's prayer as it's done corporately is lead us not into temptation. So what is the correct translation here? It could be argued that all three of these are possibilities uh, for how it should be translation translated and interpreted. The most accurate with regard to literal translation of the Greek words is the NASB, do not lead us into temptation. The NLT, the New Living, has attempted to take that and kind of uh, rephrase it in such a way that would make more sense to us as modern English speakers and be closer to what we would say in today's language to convey the same principle. That's called dynamic equivalency translation, which is a method of translating more ancient languages into current. But let's look at it in the most literal way possible, looking at the original language today. And if we do, it leads us to a pretty challenging question. And that question is this. Does God lead his children into temptation? Does God lead us into temptation? That's not an easy question to answer, is it? We know what the word lead means, or at least we think we do. We know what temptation, or at least we know what it is when we yield to it. Um, and if we pray, lead us not into temptation, does that mean God might lead us into temptation under some circumstances if we don't pray about it? Is God going to be leading us into temptation? And if so, what kind of temptation are we talking about? And why would God deliberately lead his children into something he warns them to stay away from? 
These are all the kind of questions that lie beneath the surface of a seemingly pretty simple prayer request in the Lord's Prayer. It is a good question. Does God lead his children into temptation? It's possible to answer yes, no, or maybe, depending on how you define your terms. And so as I dove more deeply into this, I discovered that the early church was highly concerned about this issue. This was contentious in the early church because the first Christians held the Lord's Prayer in very high esteem. They debated the meaning of this verse over and over and over again. And as I studied several different Bible commentaries, a Bible commentary is just a really thick book usually that somebody much smarter than I am uh, and very familiar with original biblical languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, has really dove deep in and interpreted uh, what this historical context and setting and language and adaptation to today's language. And they've, they've wrote volumes over every book of the Bible on this. And as I studied several different Bible commentaries about this verse, I found that there is a tremendous amount of disagreement about this question, or at least there are many different answers given to the question, does God lead his children into temptation? And really, on one level, this prayer request seems to be pretty simple, right? I mean, we've, we've usually interpreted it pretty basic. It appears to be, mean something like, Lord, keep us out of trouble, right? Don't let anything really bad happen to us. That's how most of us have interpreted this verse. And in reality, all the scholars I read agree that this is essentially a request for God to protect us, for spiritual protection that God would bring us. But that still doesn't answer the main question, that this verse raises, does God lead his children into temptation? So let me give you my answer for what that's worth. Uh, the people I read as I prepped for this message are a whole lot smarter than I'll ever be, but I really think we all need to read, pray, and discern what scripture is saying on our own as well as looking at what other people have to say. So for me, it really all depends on how you define the word temptation. The Greek word for temptation has two basic meanings, okay? Uh, by itself, it's a neutral term. It doesn't go one way or the other. It can mean something positive or it can mean something negative depending on context and the interpretation of the listener. Um, in its positive meaning, it's translated into the words trial or testing, okay? Same Greek word translated into trial and testing. And it refers to a difficult experience in your life uh, brought about by God in order to grow your faith, to grow your trust and your dependence on him. On the negative side, it refers to temptation in the usual English sense of the word to seduce or to lure someone to do something evil. Um, so this one Greek word can have two very different meanings. It can mean a difficult trial or it can mean an invitation, a solicitation to do evil. Um, so your answer to the question, does God lead his children into temptation, is going to come from which of those meanings you think is intended in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And to make both, or to make things just a little bit more complicated, like we need that right now, the word was sometimes used with both meanings in the same passage of scripture. <laughs> Listen to James 1, verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
So the Greek word for troubles here is the same word used in Matthew chapter 6. Don't lead us into troubles. Don't lead us into temptation. Don't lead us into trials. Uh, the meaning here in James uh, chapter 1 is something like this. Rejoice when you face trials and hardships and difficulties of all sorts of different kinds because you know that this testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance has to finish this work so that we can be mature and complete and we don't need anything anymore. We don't need to be tested and tried anymore. That's the, the meaning in James 1 verse 2. Now in this sense, the word is very positive because it leads to our growth. James is telling us that God uses trials and difficulties to develop spiritual maturity in us. Now let's drop on down to verse 13 in the same chapter. So James chapter 1 verse 13. And remember when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. So here the word translated tempted or tempting is the verb form of the same word that we just read in James 1-2. It's also the same word found in Matthew 6 verse 13. So it's used in a positive sense in verse 2 and in a negative sense in verse 13. Here is the one Greek word with two different meanings used without any contradiction at all in the same biblical passage by the same author. So it really can vary. And he just, James just assumed his readers would be able to pick it up and would clearly understand the difference between the two. And in the original Greek and given the context, they would have. But now, jump a couple thousand years, meanings have changed. We're now in a completely different language. Koine Greek, which is what they spoke in and what the Bible is written in, isn't even spoken anymore in Greece. They have a different, modern Greek is way different than Koine Greek. So you have a whole possibility for things being lost in translation. But one point is crucial for us to understand as we look at this. God does not invite his children to do evil. Ever. God will not lure you into evil. He will not seduce you into evil. God will never tempt you to do something wrong. James 1.13 says that very clearly. God will not deliberately bring you into evil. He will never leave you to a place where you are forced to do evil. You may find yourself in a tough spot. You may find yourself under pressure. You may choose to do evil. In your mind, you may even feel forced by circumstances to do wrong, but even in those cases, the choice is yours, not God's. God never sets us up to fail. To do that would contradict both his holiness and his love. Uh, in fact, the Bible makes sure that we know that God will always lead us out of those difficult places. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Man, that is one of the most powerful verses in the entire New Testament for me. I love this verse because it just tells me, it's also a very defeating verse when I give in to temptation because it tells me it was all my fault. <laughs> because really when you read this, it tells us that God always provides a way out. We can stand up under the weight of that temptation. We can find our way through to the other side without giving in because God is with us and he will always provide a way out. 
So if the question is, does God lead his children into temptation in the sense of directly and personally inviting them to do wrong, the answer to that question will always be no. God's word is super clear on that. Okay, so now we're going to get a little theologically nerdy for a few minutes here, as if we haven't already, but we're going deeper. I've already said that the Greek word also contains the idea of trials or testing. Okay, so it can be temptation on the negative side, trials or testing on the positive. And I think trials or testing is probably the primary meaning here in the Lord's Prayer. Notice I said primary meaning, not exclusive meaning. Uh, I think it probably means trials and testings. The negative meaning, though, may also be present to a slight degree. Um, but to say that raises a couple of big questions. Okay, so here's the first question. Number one, if it does mean an invitation to do evil, and if we know that God does not invite us to do evil... When we pray, don't lead us into temptation, aren't we asking God not to do something he already said he would never do? It would seem to be a rather unnecessary prayer request, right? The second thing that it raises is if we know that trials and testings are good for us and they grow us, and if they're necessary for our spiritual growth and we should rejoice in them as James tells us, and if they build us up in our faith, then when we pray, don't lead us into trials and testings, aren't we asking God to free us from something that is necessary for our own spiritual maturity? How can we ask God to lead us away from something that ultimately is in our own best interest? So there's all sorts of confusion that can be raised from this verse. What is the answer then? What's the meaning of this part of the Lord's Prayer? The key is the double meaning of the Greek word translated temptation. These meanings which are complete opposites for us, are maybe really not so far apart, which is why the biblical writers could use them interchangeably, even in the same passage. And that fact gives us a clue to the interpretation of this passage of Scripture. So here's an important uh, statement for understanding this part of the Lord's Prayer, okay? What God gives to us as a trial or a test is almost always used by Satan as a temptation, what God gives to us as a trial or test is almost always used by Satan as a temptation. The very same event can be both a trial and a test to you and also a temptation from Satan. God uses it to accomplish one thing in your life and Satan at the very same time is working through an event to try to accomplish the complete opposite and twist it. God allows trials to come for a positive purpose, but Satan tries to steal and use it for his own evil reasons. So, and, and there's a perfect example that the Bible gives us, uh, and that is from the life of Jesus himself. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness gives us a perfect example of this exact principle. We know that the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness on three separate occasions, bringing these very difficult temptations uh, to try to get Jesus to fall, tempting him to turn away from the path of obedience that God had set him on that ultimately would end in the cross. And so in Matthew 4, 1, we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Okay? Who did the leading here? The Holy Spirit. Who did the tempting? The devil. Is there a contradiction here? Not at all. Did God know what was going to happen when he sent his son into the desert? Yes, he did. 
He intended from the beginning to demonstrate that his son would not yield to Satan's attempts. Was God tempting his own son? No. Now, God did put his son in a place where he could be tempted by the devil. The answer to that has to be yes. So it's a challenging thought, isn't it? I mean, it really kind of makes you think and, as I said, get kind of theologically nerdy and have a little uh, theological acrobatics here. But I wrestled with this for weeks now as we headed towards this message. I do not believe that God ever directly solicits his children to sin. God would never, you know, put sin in front of me. I don't believe that because the Bible specifically tells me it's not true. But it is true that from time to time, God allows us to go into a place where we will face severe temptations from the devil. Is God responsible for the temptation? No, he's not. He does the leading. Satan does the tempting. From God's point of view, it's a test. From Satan's point of view, it's a temptation. In other words, the tomato is both a fruit and a vegetable. But we see this pattern occurring in so many parts of our lives. God sends a trial, Satan turns it into a temptation. Let's suppose a Christian contact, uh, contracts a serious illness. Uh, could that sickness be a testing from God? Yes, it could. God could use that sickness to purify our motives, to cause the person to refocus on things of heaven instead of all the trappings of this life, to turn our eyes back to Jesus if we've gotten distracted. Now, does Satan work through sickness? Yes, he does. And through that very same sickness, Satan will be working to tempt you to despair, to anger, to bitterness, and ultimately to turn away from God. So the same thing that God can use to grow us and develop spiritual maturity in us, the enemy can use to destroy us and to tear us down. What God intends for your spiritual good is the weapon that Satan uses to pull you down. Or suppose you lose your job. You, you, you could ask, could this be from God? Yes, it could. If you lose your job, could God have a better purpose in mind for you? Yes, he often does. He may have a better job for you. He certainly wants to build some spiritual character into your life. Uh, you may have fallen in love with the things of the world to the point where those good things have become an idol to you. Uh, in that case, it's good for us to lose a good job in those cases. And during that trial, that period of testing from God, Satan will tempt you to anger, despair, and discouragement. Same principle, same circumstances, God can use to grow us, Satan will try to use to tear us down. Now it works the other way, you know, in losing your job, it works the other way as well. Let's suppose you get a promotion and a nice raise. Now you're better off financially than you've ever been. Can a promotion be a trial from God? Absolutely. Prosperity is often a trial or a test from God to see how well we handle his blessings. You know, prosperity ought to make us more generous. Having more should open our eyes to those who have less than we do. But that same prosperity can often make us greedy and selfish. And the enemy will do all he can to make us fall into that sin. So you see this principle playing out. These are just a few examples of how something God intends as a means of building us up is also something that Satan tries to use as a means of temptation to pull us down. And I want you to see two things from this. Number one, Testing and trials are a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of our faith journey because God uses them to grow us. James tells us to expect them and to rejoice when we go through them. They're part of God's curriculum for you. 
He puts difficult choices in front of you every day so that by following them and, or following him and by trusting him in those circumstances, we become stronger. Um, your faith over time becomes battle tested and you become an example to other people of victory over the world and over the enemy. And there's nothing you can do to escape the trials of life. Nothing at all. You cannot avoid them. We are going to go through them. The word of God promises that. This is part of our growth. It's part of our education as a follower of Jesus. And there's no auditing those classes. Uh, in the school of faith, God doesn't offer a no trials degree program. Uh, all of us will be tested many times in many ways throughout the course of our lives, usually daily. Now, the second thing I want us to notice is that a trial becomes a temptation when we respond wrongly, uh, when we don't take the way out that God provides. The same thing that was sent into our life in order to make us stronger is what could actually tear us down and make us weaker if we yield to sin. What God meant for good, Satan means for evil. Every one of us is caught in the middle between the tests and the trials from God and the temptation of the devil as he twists and he deceives and he whispers in our ear, go ahead, it's no big deal, go ahead. We treat and think about testing and temptations as if they're far, far apart, like they're two completely different things. But the biblical writers had no problem using the same word to mean both. Uh, in one verse and then the very, you know, same word a few Versus later, it means something different. They understood what we have kind of lost sight of, and that is that everything good from God and everything he gives us is ultimately for our good and for his glory. He does not sin and doesn't tempt us to sin, but hidden inside every test is a seed of a temptation that Satan uses to attempt to bring us down. Every single time, Satan's gonna try to take us down. So with all this in mind, it's pretty easy to see that this part of the Lord's Prayer is one of the most natural and instinctive requests that we can make because this is something that we go through on a daily basis. Trial and testing, possibility of it turning into temptation that we yield and give into. This is something we deal with every day. And so when we get to that place in our lives where we can say, God, don't lead me into temptation. Let it stay a testing or a trial. Help me not to give in. Help me to stand strong in the face of temptation. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. This is referring to Jesus. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is basically saying the same thing that we just read, that God will provide. He will strengthen us. He will see us through if we will lean on him. Jesus is moved by your sorrow. He's aware of your tears. He has compassion when it comes even to your failure. He knows what we are going through because he faced the same trials and temptations that we do, yet Jesus never yielded. Sometimes when we're in the middle of a hard time, people who mean well uh, will say something along the lines of, I know what you're going through. And maybe they do, often they don't. Uh, but that's what Hebrews 4.15 means when it says that Jesus understands our weaknesses. He knows our pain. He sees our suffering. He understands what we are going through. Because of what Jesus endured on his time on earth, 
Jesus truly knows what we are going through. He can relate because he lived it. Jesus faced every kind of temptation we can face. Basically, every temptation falls into one of three categories. First uh, John tells us this in chapter two. For the world offers only a craving for physical, flesh or, <laughs> physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. So another translation says the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. So Jesus defeated the devil in these three areas when he was tempted. These temptations that Jesus went through directly related to these key areas. Where we failed, he succeeded. Where we gave in, he stood strong. Where we collapsed under pressure, Jesus obeyed the Father. He was tempted, but he never sinned by giving in. When we pray, we don't have to worry that we will somehow shock him. You are not going to shock Jesus with your prayer. He's heard it all and seen it all. We can go ahead and be totally honest about our failures. He knows about it before we even tell him anyway. And, and because Jesus knows how sinful we really are, we don't have to play games when we pray. We don't have to pretend. You're not going to dupe Jesus. The mask needs to come off when you approach him in prayer. We can come to God just the way we are, clinging to the cross as our only hope of being accepted when we pray. And that's really what Matthew 6:13 is all about. That's what this portion of the Lord's prayer connects to. Jesus' time here on earth and his victory over sin. Because without his strength, we lose every single time. Maybe some of you are in the middle of a big losing streak right now. You've been trying to do it on your own. You've given in to temptation way too often. You wonder what God even wants with you anymore. And guys, I want you to know we have this verse to return to time and time again. There is no limit to this verse. Matthew 6, 13. And don't let us yield to temptation. Guys, if you're in that losing streak situation in your life right now, keep praying and keep going. Don't give up. And as we finish, I want to look at a prayer prayed by King Jehoshaphat great name, uh, in 2 Chronicles verse 20. And this, the setting for this, the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were uh, two enemy nations to Israel, they were moving in this massive army towards Jerusalem. They had joined forces, and there were so many of them, and they were so well armed that the men of Israel would never be able to defeat them. And as the invaders came closer and closer, the situation looked increasingly hopeless for Israel, and the king called for a nationwide fast, and men from every town and village gathered in Jerusalem to seek God together. And Jehoshaphat stood in front of them and he offered one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. If you want to read the whole thing, it's in 2 Chronicles 20, 6 through 12. It's just such a great prayer. And he begins by declaring God's greatness in verse 6. He prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. So he begins by declaring the greatness of God, and then he moves on, and for the next few verses, he reminds God of the promises that God made to take care of his people when they were in trouble. And guys, that's why praying scripture is so powerful. It is a praying back the promises of God that God has already said that he would do. So what we're doing when we pray scripture is we're tapping into God's willingness, 
Sometimes we look at prayer as we're trying to overcome God's reluctance, but really prayer is tapping into God's willingness, especially when we pray his promises back to him. And then Jehoshaphat basically tells God, we're in big trouble now and we need you. And then he concludes with this in verse 12. Listen to this. We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. And so God's answer to this prayer came through a prophet who told the people to stand still and watch the Lord's victory. That's what he told them. So the next day, Jehoshaphat put the singers at the head of the army and sent them out to do battle. They literally stood still and watched as the Lord confused the enemy armies and the Moabites and the Ammonites started killing each other by mistake. And there was a great battle that destroyed every enemy soldier and the Israelites didn't lift a sword. And the story ends with the army gathering for this praise celebration, thanking God for the victory he provided. When Jehoshaphat prayed this, when he prayed, we do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. What he's really saying here, here's a, here's a really great paraphrase. Lord, we are just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if you don't help us, we're done. <laughs> That's relatable, isn't it? We're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if you don't help us, we're done. It sounds like a great mission statement for an honest church, you know, when you think about it. We're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if God doesn't help us, we're done. Because without God's grace, that's all we are. We're just a bunch of pathetic losers. Without God, we don't have a chance. And we don't have a thing to offer. And we don't even know what to do next. And sometimes I think the hardest job that God has is getting us to admit how desperately we need him because we're so prideful at our core. And Matthew 6, 13 is our opportunity to lean into God during our trials, when we experience testing, even when we fail. Because when you fail, you have two options. You can fail or you can fail forward. God never wants us to fail, but when we do, he wants us to fail forward to lean into him, to repent, to grow, to be renewed, to change. You know, this fifth request made in the Lord's Prayer is meant for pathetic losers. And that's not meant to discourage you in any way. God does his best work with pathetic losers who will throw themselves completely into his mercy and grace. Jesus told us how to live when he said this in Mark 8.35, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. In the kingdom of God, the values are all reversed. You know, the last shall be first, the least will be the greatest, the servants will be the masters. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are admitting that we have no power and no clue on how to face the problems of this life. And I'm the first to say, I'm clueless. Without God, I don't have a chance. And God rejoices to help those who have nowhere else to go but to him. So let's turn to him today. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this model prayer, Jesus, that you've given us in Matthew chapter 6. And we thank you, Jesus, that uh, you have shown us that there is a way to avoid temptation even. 
We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through struggles. We're going to face all sorts of hardships in this life. But God, we want you to use those to grow us up. We want you to use those to develop us uh, into spiritually mature followers of Jesus. And so, Lord, when we face those difficulties, when we face those difficult circumstances, and when the enemy comes and tries to twist those into temptations that would take us down, God, help us to stand firm in the promise of your word that you will always provide a way out. God, I pray for those who are hearing this right now who have really, they've been giving in. They, their testing, their trials have been turning into temptations because they have given in time and time again. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to come to the foot of the cross today, that they would yield to you and say, God, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I can't make it without you. Just like Jehoshaphat prayed. And Lord, I pray that you would show up in their life in a powerful way, that you would forgive them, that you would transform them, that you would renew their mind and get them into a place of strength that they can face those trials and they can stand underneath the pressure of the temptation brought by the enemy. And God, we can stand firm and come out the other side in victory like Jesus did. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in victory. God, for those times where we do fail, help us to fail forward. Help us to fall into your arms to get back up and to keep going. We thank you, Lord. Be with us this week as we face even more testing. God, as we go through those tests, God, I pray that we would use the strength that you have provided for us to see it through to the other side. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.